Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. We have been going through the book, part of the book of 1 Kings, particularly the story of Elijah. We had just looked at how Elijah had met with the king, with King Ahab and with the prophets, the false prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah had had a pretty good day at first. He stood up against 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in a contest that a great crowd from all over Israel had witnessed. And when it was over, all the people fell down and proclaimed, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And then they turned against the prophets of Baal. This is great news. Then to make a good day even better, the Lord, after three and a half years of no rain, sent a heavy shower that ended the devastating drought. And so now hopes are high. But all of that is about to change suddenly. And where is God when it seems like hope is given to us and then just as quickly snatched away? If you've ever asked that question, this passage should be of great comfort to you, for in it we are reminded of God's grace, of his faithfulness, and of his quiet sovereignty, even in the midst of our confusion and disappointments. This is God's word. I'll be reading the whole chapter. I know it's long. Please bear with me. 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. 
and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the, for the, of the, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escaped from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escaped from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen, and he ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We ask that you would help us to understand it, help us to apply it to our lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. This passage here is a famous passage. It is often looked at as almost the proof text for dealing with depression. Elijah, so it goes, has fallen under depression. He who had stood mightily before 450 prophets in all of Israel has now cowered before one woman. He runs away, wants to die, He's self-focused. I am the only one that's left. He runs away, away, like Jonah, away from God, all the way into the wilderness. And God says, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And so it goes, and people will often look at this passage and focus on the person and the psychology of Elisha, of Elijah. Sorry, I am going to try to argue against that today. A little bit. Some of it's true. Clearly, Elijah is afraid. Elijah wants to die. That is, that is clear. 
Is Elijah depressed? I'm not sure. Uh, I can't read his mind. My focus today will be on Elijah's God. And there we will see a much different picture and something that should comfort you, no matter your condition. We'll keep that in mind as we look through this again. Now, King Ahab had been there on Mount Carmel to see how the Lord proved himself to be the true God. King Ahab had seen the prophets of Baal dance around and cut themselves for hours to no avail. He saw how, in contrast, God responded to Elijah's simple prayer with a fire from heaven that at once consumed the sacrifice and the altar and even the stones and the dust and the water that was around it. King Ahab had seen how Elijah's word about God sending rain was also true, even though Elijah had prophesied it before there was a single cloud in the sky. Now, King Ahab had seen all these things, but the queen had not. Jezebel was hanging out at their nearby palace in Jezreel, waiting for news from her husband. And Ahab returns with what should have been great news. The fake God was proven to be fake. The true God was proven to be true. The drought is over. That should be good news. We don't know exactly what words Ahab used, but look at how verse 1 sums it up. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, period. Nothing here about what God had done. Nothing here about the rain ending or why farmers and everyone else around Israel must have been celebrating. Now, Ahab, it seems, still has a hard heart. He presents this in the worst possible way to the worst person around. And it's a very one-sided report. Nothing about what God had said. Now, for Jezebel, this was terrible news. She probably expected that Elijah was going to be killed and her prophets were going to come back victorious. She had hated the Lord. She had hunted down his prophets with the sword. Never mind all the irrefutable proof that the Lord was the true God. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we long for miracles, something to show the people around us that the the Lord is God. Miracles won't do anything to hearts that are dead. What we need is the Holy Spirit changing hearts. Without that, not all the miracles in the world, not all the best arguments in the world are enough to convince the lost. Like Pharaoh toward Moses, Jezebel just grows more hardened, more enraged against Elijah. So she sends a messenger to Elijah with a short and a thoroughly pagan and even evil message. So may the gods, plural, do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, if Elijah wanted to continue mocking her, he could have said, "Um, Jezebel, what gods? But instead, he is scared. This word here, he's afraid, in some of your translations, will be, and he saw. 
it's hard to know which of these words is the correct translation. Perhaps he is afraid and he runs for his life. Perhaps he just sees the situation that this has not brought about the revival that he was anticipating. Either way, he ends up running for his life south. Not a little way, but remember, Mount Carmel is in, on the border, the northern border of Israel and Phoenicia. He runs all the way there from Jezreel nearby, all the way across, clear across the country into Judah, and then clear across Judah down to the very bottom of it to a place called Beersheba. He runs clear across two countries, and then he doesn't stop there. He heads out another day's journey into the wilderness, and he sits down under a little broom tree, and he asks God to take his life. Now, this is a sad picture. And we've seen it's, this is where the focus becomes on his desperation, his depression. I don't think that's the message, though Elijah is certainly discouraged here, and you can imagine why. He has been lonely for three years. More than that, he has seen the prophets of Baal defeated. It has been clearly seen that God is God. The Lord is God. And like the widow before him, whose child was starving, the widow in Zarephath, and God gave her food to keep that child alive, and then the child died. It seemed like Life was given, and then ripped away just as quickly. And why? Why would God do this? Elijah is confused about God's ways. He doesn't understand. He thought a revival was coming. And he says, I'm no better than my father's. And he wants to die. Now, Elijah doesn't simply just want to die. If he wanted to die, he could have just stayed in Jezreel and by that time tomorrow, uh, Jezebel would have taken care of it. He doesn't want her to have the victory. He just wants to stop working. He wants God to take him away. And God will take him away. And he won't answer this prayer. For one guy who prays to die, he won't die. He goes to heaven without dying in the end. But <clears throat> you see him struggling here with God's ways. It seems almost cruel. But you remember how the story of the widow and her son ended. Although God had taken away the boy's life, he also raised him from the dead, the first person to ever be raised from the dead in the Bible. God's ways are more glorious than we can anticipate, even when it seems bad. Now, although... Elijah is discouraged. He doesn't do anything to harm himself. That's not his right. His body, like ours, doesn't belong to you. You have been bought with a price. You belong to God, and therefore you cannot take your own life. Instead, he asked God that God would take his life. Oh, Lord, take my life, he says. And he lays down and he sleeps under this tree. It's not just that he wants to die. He wants God to take him away. He feels like a failure. And if you know the story of Elijah, you'll know that God still has plans for him 
God will take him away in his time without death. God had in times past sustained his prophet with a raven, with ravens bringing him food day and night. He had sustained his prophet for a long time in Zarephath through a starving widow. But now, when Elijah is brought to his lowest point, God sustains him with something greater. Not a poor widow, not unclean ravens. When Elijah is so sad, so weary of life, God sends an angel to give him breakfast. Not just any angel either. It is the angel of the Lord. This is the same angel who called to Moses from the burning bush. It is the same angel who had prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. It is the same angel who looked after Hagar in the wilderness after she had been driven away. And what was the great work that this angel was doing? Making breakfast for Elijah. We might wonder, when was the last time Elijah had to make food for himself? Maybe years, maybe never. But here an angel comes, touches Elijah, and says, Arise, eat. We don't see Elijah make any response at all. He just gets up, eats the food, and he lays back down and sleeps. Brothers and sisters, what kind of God is this? So merciful to the rebellious, so condescending and kind to his servants. The God who sends the angel of the Lord to make breakfast, and who sends his almighty son to become a lowly man, to wash our feet, to comfort us in our sorrow, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to die on a cross for us. When Hagar was cared for by the angel of the Lord in the wilderness, she said, Truly I have seen him who looks after me. The God who looks after me, especially in our sorrow. Brothers and sisters, do you know God this way? The God who looks after me, isn't he wonderful? Now Elijah fell asleep again, and a second time the angel of the Lord touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. We might ask, what journey? He is a day's journey away from Beersheba if he returns. But he goes on 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of this food, which clearly was given to him to sustain him for such a journey, continuing south to Mount Horeb. So God doesn't prevent him, like like Jonah, from leaving. He meets him, he feeds him, he encourages him on his journey further. He goes down, not 70, 80 miles away from from Jezebel now, but a 300-mile journey he takes all the way to Horeb. Now, this is an amazing thing. He goes down to Horeb, and he calls it the Mount of God. You can feel something incredible is about to happen. For this is no ordinary journey, no ordinary provision. It's no ordinary destination. This is Horeb, the mountain of God. You might be more familiar with Horeb's other name, 
Mount Sinai. Horeb is Mount Sinai. It is here that God called to Moses from the burning bush. It was here that Moses brought the people back after they had left Egypt, where Moses went 40 days and nights without food. It was here that Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. It was here that the trumpet blasted and lightning struck and thick cloud covered the mountain. The Lord descended in fire and smoke and the whole mountain quaked violently. This was Covenant Mountain. This was holy ground. And there at the mountain, Elijah comes to a cave. And the Lord says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah doesn't really say why he's at this mountain. He tells God, rather, his situation. I've been very zealous for the Lord. Israel has forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets. I'm the last one, and they want to kill me too. Now this often is looked at as his just self-focus. He thinks that he's the Savior. Everything's against him. Everybody's hunting him down. These things are true, though. They are hunting him. They have killed the prophets. He is the only one, it seems, openly standing up for God. He was the only one at Mount Carmel. And he said the same thing at Mount Carmel. I'm the only one. Not when he was depressed, when he was bold, when he was mocking the prophets of Baal. And God saying, what are you doing here? Is not, what are you doing here? Because after that, he tells him, go up the mountain. And then when Elijah goes up the mountain, he asks him a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? This might be confusing. Elijah could say, you just told me to come here, God. I'm obeying you. So it's not a, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. He is inviting him to tell him his needs. Focus on God in this passage. Here, when Elijah is at his worst, when he is most scared, most wants to die, running for his life, God meets him. God feeds him. God strengthens him for the journey. God invites him to tell, to talk to him. God converses with him. God will tell him the future. God will encourage him. God will give him another helper to help him. Isn't this the focus of the passage? A gracious God who helps us in our time of need. At no point does God rebuke Elijah here. No, at no point does he say, you shouldn't be here. At no point does he, does he say, go back to the work I, I told you. He sends him to a, to a new task afterwards that he tells him on the mountain. And so we see here that it doesn't make that much sense for God to be merely rebuking him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers the second time the same way in verse 14. Now, he has been struggling. He has been disappointed. There, he is not the only one, and he knows it. There were a hundred prophets hidden away in a cave. There was a um, King Ahab's servant, Obadiah, 
There are others, too, that he doesn't know about. But what his focus is on is that the co- God's covenant people, who he called, who he brought there to this mountain, have turned away. They have broken the covenant. They have killed God's messengers, and they've turned to false gods. And he feels like it is the end. It is the end. In many ways, he is like Moses after he had went down the mountain and he saw them worshiping the golden calf and he came back up the mountain. They have broken your covenant. They have turned away from you. Now, I think that this is God's questioning, what are you doing here, is this invitation for him to pour out all these things before him, here before the Lord, on this holy mountain. And Elijah is speaking as a, as a lawyer, as a covenant prosecutor against Israel. Now what happens next is famous, but it is difficult to understand. Elijah climbs up the mountain where Moses had been so many years earlier, and behold, the Lord was passing by. And there was an incredible wind, a wind so strong that the rocks were split before it. Then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. Then there was an earthquake, and the Lord was not in that. And then a fire, and the Lord was not in that either. It's not that the Lord hadn't used these things before. God had used wind to judge the Egyptians. He used wind to part the Red Sea. When Moses was on this mountain, there was also an earthquake. There was an earthquake at Christ's resurrection. There was fire on this mountain on Moses' day, too. There was fire at Pentecost. There was fire very recently on Mount Carmel. All of these things must have reminded Elijah of God's work, especially on Mount Carmel. But I I want you to focus for a moment on another phrase. And it is this one. Behold, the Lord was passing by. Because Israel, after breaking the covenant and worshiped the golden calf, God called Moses up to that mountain. And God put Moses in the cleft of the rock, maybe the same, very same cave that Elijah is in. And Exodus 34, we read it earlier. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I believe a similar thing is going on here with Elijah. Like Moses, Elijah has come to speak with God about his people who have broken the covenant. And what does God reveal about himself? His wrath and his mercy. A God gracious and compassionate. The Lord revealed himself in this day, not in the strong wind or the earthquake or in the fire, but in the sound of a gentle blowing. 
Now, how could Elijah even survive the strong wind if the Lord had not placed him in the cave like Moses in the cleft of the rock? But when the Lord comes in the sound of a gentle blowing, he comes gently to Elijah. He comes condescending in mercy and gentleness so that Elijah can stand in God's presence and not be destroyed. Even then, Elijah has to cover his face. The Lord is holy. What does it all mean? It doesn't mean that we should expect to hear God speak to us very quietly if we listen very carefully. That is not what is being taught. But it is showing us that although God is very powerful, He is also very gentle with us. He is gracious and compassionate and forgiving. He will punish the wicked. And the message he gives is a message of judgment. Elijah is to anoint one foreign king to, uh, and a new king over Israel to replace evil King Ahab. We, we fret when there are evil rulers. God does not. God already has the next ruler queued up, ready to go, even when we don't know what his plan is. There will be a ruler to replace Ahab, and there will be Elisha, a prophet, to replace Elijah. And they will judge the wicked. But there is also a message of grace, too, isn't there? God will preserve a remnant. Elijah is not the only one left. God hasn't lost track of what's going on. He knows all of them. He knows all of their names. He knows how many hairs are on all their heads. There are 7,000 that God has left in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, 7,000 is not a lot, but it's a lot more than one. In the midst of all this horrendous time of corruption and persecution, God has been quietly working. He has been quietly preserving his people, preserving a remnant for himself. He has been quietly sovereign in the midst of all the evil in the world. Since Jesus said that the kingdom of of heaven is like a mustard seed, it starts off so small imperceptibly and grows sometimes undetected. But Jesus will build his church, and even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm reminded of when Chairman Mao came to power in China and drove out all the missionaries. And it seemed like the the growth of the church was closed in China. And for years, behind the bamboo curtain, people didn't know what was going on. And then it, it opened up. And the church had grown from 5 million to more than 100 million underground. Chairman Mao created roads all over. He united the nation with the simplified Chinese. In a way, he became God's unpaid servant, making it easier for the gospel to spread. God was quietly sovereign when it looked like all hope was driven away. That's your God, too. You look at the news. I don't, I don't know, care what news source you're looking at. It's usually not good. 
right? And we, we fret. Maybe like Elijah, we think it's the end. It's over. Your God, brothers and sisters, is sovereign in all of this. None of him takes, us by, takes it by surprise. He will preserve his church. He is quietly sovereign. Jesus will build his church, and not even the gates of Hades will overcome it. And one of the things that we can take from this is to remember that God is still at work even when the church seems to be stagnant or shrinking. Sometimes we can be almost spoiled in our desire to always see revival on a mass scale. We want fire and wind and earthquake. We want Mount Carmel to be the great turning point in Israel. But we neglect to appreciate the slow, steady, regular ministry of the Word. Regular preaching, the sacraments, the slow growth that comes with it. Yes, pray for revival. I want to see Mount Pleasant, in Mount Pleasant, some of the conversions that are happening in China, in Africa, South Korea. That doesn't mean that God is not working here. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. He is here. Now, two or three is not many, but God is still with us. So let us be patient with the gentle blowing, with the normal ministry of the word, and not always demand fireworks and spectacular miracles. It was not the spectacular fire of Mount Carmel that truly changed hearts in Elijah's day. Nor, nor was it the earthquake and the fire that truly changed hearts in Moses' day. It was always the Holy Spirit working through the Word. That is the way that God changes the hearts of men and women. It is the way that He will continue to do so. It is the Gospel that is the power of God to salvation. And as soon as we hear this message of grace, we see it begin to be fulfilled. Elisha, great Elisha, is called from his work, not with miracles, but in just a simple, quiet way. No fire from heaven. He's there plowing with the oxen since the rain has finally come back. And Elijah comes and throws his mantle over him. Just like that, he follows. Like the disciples leaving their nets at the simple words of Jesus, Elisha has a complete break from his life. He sacrifices the oxen that he was plowing with. He burns them on the plow that he was using. And he gives it to the people to eat. And he arises, leaves everything. He follows Elijah. It's not simply the beginning of the fulfillment of God's message to Elijah. It's also the powerful but gentle way that the Lord uses. The Lord simply calls us in his word and our lives are changed forever. Brothers and sisters, in all your times of struggle, in your confusion, he calls you to come and follow him. You will find rest for your souls. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God, not just of good times, but you are the God of all times. You hold us fast. You keep track of us. 
you always preserve a church on earth, for you are an eternal king. We pray that you would hold us fast, that you would keep us hopeful, and help us to fix our eyes on you in the lives and the place in history that you have placed us. And we pray, Lord, that there would be revival. We pray in your time, in your way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.